Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. We'll introduce Scott O'Connor. Born in Syracuse, New York, he is a co-founder of Go Studios, a post-production and motion graphics design firm, and the author of three novels, Half World, Among Wolves, and Untouchable, for which he was awarded the 2011 Barnes & Noble Discover Award for Fiction. So here he is. That's good. Hi, thanks for, thank you all for coming. Uh, thank you, Kelsey. Thanks to Skylight Books for hosting this. Uh, I really appreciate it. This has always been my favorite bookstore in Los Angeles, and uh, it's always a, a real joy to, to come in and do something here. I'm trying to get this up to my height, sort of. Um, so this is my new novel, Half World, which is in some ways about uh, a top secret CIA project called MKUltra, which ran from about the mid-50s to at least the mid-60s, maybe longer, depending on who you believe. And this was the US government's uh, brainwashing and mind control program. And so this is the height of the Cold War, you know, the early 50s, and there was a real fear that the Soviet Union or the Chinese were using brainwashing techniques on POWs during the Korean War, American POWs. And so the United States government through the CIA started this program called MKUltra. And it was, a, it was a fairly large program. It encompassed a lot of, a lot of different, uh, a lot of different tentacles, including experimenting on prisoners, experimenting on mental patients, uh, usually with the use of drugs, specifically LSD, which at the time in the mid-50s was not a street drug. It was sort of this unknown wonder drug that the psychiatric community sort of hoped could unlock the powers of people's minds. Um, one of the other sub-projects, one of the smaller projects, uh, involved safe houses that CIA operatives opened uh, in at least three no locations that we know of. They had one in Greenwich Village, uh, they had one in Marin, just outside of San Francisco, and then they had one within the city of San Francisco. And what they would do is they would rent an apartment, uh, and they would hire prostitutes to bring men in off the street, and then they would secretly drug them, usually with LSD or other things. And the CIA operatives would watch, usually from behind a two-way mirror or, or through listening or, or uh, visual devices, and they would see what effect the drugs had on these men. They would see if they were uh, more susceptible to interrogation, uh, if, they, if you could change their personalities, if you could get them to do things they wouldn't normally do. Uh, a lot of these records, most of these records on this program were destroyed in the early 70s, so there's not a lot of documentary 
evidence about it. Um, but for a fiction writer, that's great. You stumble on something like this and you're like, great, there's only a few things known so I can write 400 pages and make it all up. Uh, so, the, so the book starts in the mid-50s and there is a sort of uh, company man, a CIA officer named Henry March, who's a very buttoned-down counterintelligence officer and before the book begins he has suffered a nervous breakdown. And because of this he's uh, considered a liability and he is sent west with his family to open one of these safe houses in San Francisco. Um, and so when we, when we begin the book, he and his family are leaving their home in Arlington, Virginia, and they're on their way to kind of start their new life. So I'll read a little bit from the beginning, and then I'll move on. They drove west, Arlington to Charleston, West Virginia. Charleston to Lexington, Kentucky. Henry had purchased a new leather-bound ledger, and in it he wrote the dates and distances traveled, what he and Jenny spent on gas, meals, motel rooms. 76 miles to Louisville, 81 miles to Jasper, Indiana, $7 at the Pine Needles Motel, $6 at the Apple Tree Lodge in Carmi, Illinois. The station wagon jostled along the imperfectly paved county routes, the local thoroughfares. A brown Chevrolet, their first new car in 10 years since just after Hannah was born. A pair of suitcases strapped to the top, the back filled to the ceiling with crates and boxes, all the clothes and silverware and china that Ginny hadn't wanted to leave for the movers. In the rearview mirror, Henry checked on Hannah and Thomas in the back seat. Thomas seemed content for the most part, Hannah less so. She was unhappy about the move, having to leave school before the end of sixth grade, abandoning her friends, the house in Arlington, the high ceiling bedroom that she loved. She sulked, watching her reflection in the windows, the landscape pulling across the length of the car, the ticking away of each town that took her farther from home. Carmi to St. Louis, St. Louis to Joplin. They celebrated Thomas's second, seventh birthday in a roadside diner. Thomas moved along his invisible train tracks to a corner booth where they had hamburgers and milkshakes and a slice of chocolate cake with a line of striped flickering candles. Ginny had warned the waitresses, but once the cake was presented, it was as if they couldn't help themselves and they burst into a loud, wailing recital of happy birthday. Thomas's hands flew to his ears. He shut his eyes tight, but the waitresses took this as a joke of some kind, a cue to sing louder, and then Thomas was flailing in the booth swinging his arms, kicking, scattering plates and glasses, sending knives and forks, sailing tines out. Henry and Ginny were able to grab his wrists and ankles, hold his hands away from the window, keep him immobile. Hannah pulled napkins from the dispenser and cleared glass from the table, out of Thomas's reach. Ginny whispered in his ear, singing softly. Henry held his son down in the booth, the boy so big, so strong for his age. Sweat from Henry's hand sliding down to Thomas's jackknifing wrists, pressing into him until it passed, until Thomas had exhausted himself and they were able to carry him to the car and start out on the road again. In a camera shop in Fort Smith, Arkansas, Henry purchased a used Kodak Signet. He'd never owned a camera before. He told Ginny it was to document their trip so they could look back when they were old and forgetful. 
He took pictures of the scenery, the children in front of the scenery, Hannah pouting or sticking out her tongue, Thomas standing rigid, wary of his father's new device, his hands at his side, his face without expression, staring at the camera lens, through the camera lens. The surprise of the seeming indulgence delighted Ginny, that Henry had finally found a hobby. It had only taken him 40 years. It seemed to promise a more relaxed existence the farther they got from Washington. She watched him frame a shot, smiled at the way he approached his new interest, applying to this personal pursuit the same rigid precision he'd always brought to his work. Lifting the camera, leaning in, the lens of his glasses tapping the viewfinder, taking half a breath, holding it in his chest. She wanted to tell him how happy this made her, but she was careful not to speak with the camera in front of his face. He startled so easily these days. There was a small identification tag hanging from the neck strap of the signet, and while changing film in the car outside Baton Rouge, Henry pointed out, Hannah pointed out that she had written his name on the paper inside, Mr. Henry March. On the address line, she had written Arlington, Virginia, then had crossed that out and written Oakland, California. In smaller letters above, Henry thanked her and then quietly, at their next stop, slipped the paper from the tag and flushed it in the filling station restroom. They were sending him west to keep him away from the agency's vital organs, moving him to the periphery, the fingertip of the country. He had seen this happen before to others. He had been the man to send others away. He knew the danger in keeping a damaged individual so close to the company's heart. What had happened was not something they could look past, with another officer possibly, but not with him. For Henry to be of value to the organization, his integrity had to be beyond reproach. If that was no longer the case, then all that was left was his sense of duty, his willingness to follow orders. Gallop to New Mexico, gallop New Mexico to Williams, Arizona. Ginny held Henry's hand while she slept, while he lay on his back and stared at what he could see of the motel room ceilings, the darkness around him. He had never slept more than a few hours a night and now he slept even less. Back in Arlington, he would have walked the house, the yard, smoked, fixed himself a cup of coffee, the day's work still in his head, trying to untangle a personality, a web of connections. All of the documentation would be back in a safe in his office, but he never needed the paperwork once he'd read through it in initial time. He kept the facts in his head, the facts, the half-facts, the outright deceptions. He walked the yard, he sat in the living room, assembling pieces, solving a riddle. Here, though, in a motel room in Williams, in Oklahoma City, in Alamogordo, he stayed in bed, looked at the ceilings, the small dark rings of water damage, the bare patches where the paint came away in tiny chips. There was only one riddle now, but he did not know where to begin to untangle it. At the end of the third week, they reached Oakland, the house on the hill that had been rented for them. Three bedrooms and a small den where Ginny could paint. Henry parked the Chevrolet in the driveway and they all stepped out and stretched. Thomas chugged into the house along his imagined tracks. Hannah walked in the front door and burst into tears. Henry cleared out what remained in the car. He set the drawings the children had made on the floor in the dining room where the table would eventually sit. He placed the ledger in the box of film in his briefcase and set the locks. That first night after Hannah and Thomas were in their sleeping bags in their new rooms, Henry looked for Ginny in the dark, unfamiliar house. 
He finally found her outside, standing on the front lawn, looking down the hill to the bay and the bridge, breathing deeply, her eyes heavy. The salt air was warm and light. She whispered his name, calling him to her. She took his hand and they stood and watched the black water, the lights of the city beyond. This is where we begin, she said. She squeezed his hand. This is where we begin again. So, Henry sets up shop in San Francisco. He rents two apartments that share a wall between the bedrooms, and one apartment is an office, and the other apartment is the bedroom. Uh, and there's a two-way mirror between the two and a lot of surveillance equipment. And he, uh, he has a couple of partners in his operation. One is a police detective named Jimmy Dorn, who's a big kind of burly bully of a guy whose job is to procure the prostitutes and also to keep the police away from the operation. And then there's an agency psychiatrist who's sent out named Cameron Clark, whose job it is is to, uh, to bring and use the LSD and to observe the men that they are experimenting upon. Uh, they have two women who are working with them, prostitutes, uh, named Elizabeth and Emma. And uh, when this short scene begins, they're waiting for Elizabeth to bring a man back to the apartments. Waiting in the darkened office, the three men, headphones on, cigarettes lit, cameras and recorders loaded, listening for footsteps on the stairs, watching the black window, the invisible room. They heard the front door open, then the sound of running, stumbling, someone topping the stairs and then pounding on the outer office door. Headphones off, all three men up. Doran motioned for them to stay put. He moved alone into the outer room, someone still pounding on the door. Doran looked through the security eyelet, turned the locks. He opened the door and Elizabeth was leaning against the frame, breathless. There was blood on the shoulder of her dress, cuts under her eye, along her ear. Doran ushered her across the vestibule into the north apartment, Clark following. Henry headed down the stairs to check the front door, the street. She sat on the sofa, looking thin and cold. They surrounded her, Clark standing by the armchair, Doran back by the windows, leaning with his face to the glass to see down the street. Henry was the only one in motion, pulling a pillowcase free in the bedroom, filling it with ice in the kitchen. Doran lit a cigarette, shook the match. Did they say anything? Henry handed Elizabeth the rolled pillowcase, and she pressed the ice to her eye, winced. They told me they'd heard things, she said. What things? Things I was doing to men. And you came back here, Clark said. Where else was I going to go? Henry stood by the record player, watching her. They were all watching her. Doran said, how many? Two, I think. Clark fumbled in his pockets for his own cigarettes. You think? It was dark. What else did they say, Henry said. Nothing. She shifted the ice to her ear, just that they'd heard things. What did they look like, Doran said. It was dark. I couldn't see right. They were behind me. And you didn't tell them anything, Clark said. Elizabeth looked up at him. I didn't tell them shit. Doran stepped toward Elizabeth, gestured with his cigarette. This is it? The eye and the ear? In the back of my head, Elizabeth said. They hit me in the back of my head to start. You're lucky. Doran turned back to the window. You're really goddamn lucky. 
I feel lucky, she said. She shifted the ice back to her eye. I feel like I won the fucking jackpot. So the book, <laughs> the book takes a shift. About 20 years or so into the future where we uh, encounter sort of the second generation of the ultra experiment uh, and we meet a character named Dickie Ashby who in his uh, young professional life has worked mo mostly as an informant for the government. He was in Vietnam uh, working basically as an as a informant on his fellow soldiers on who was using drugs and who was uh, selling drugs and who was buying drugs with military intelligence. When he came back to the States, uh, he was sent into the student anti-war movement. This is uh, during the height of the Vietnam War. And he was informing on student groups for the government. And then he was tasked with a mission where he was supposed to nudge the student group that he was involved in, in the Pacific Northwest, towards violent action. There was a thought at the time in the government, uh, because the Vietnam War was going so terribly and popular sentiment was, was really shifting towards the protesters away from the government. And the thought was, if some of these groups would commit violent acts, then maybe the popular sentiment would go back to the side of, of law and order, which is exactly what happened, actually. Um, but Dickie Ashby, as an operative, is, is sent into this group to try to nudge them toward concrete action. And he does. They plan a bombing of an engineering film, firm outside of Portland that works in, in chemical weapons. And the plan is that they're going to blow up this office building when no one's around, and they'll destroy the building, and they'll destroy all the paperwork. Uh, but there's a man who's there on the weekend. He's not supposed to be there. He's an engineer, and he's killed in the blast. And so it all goes pretty wrong, and this group has to scatter sort of to the wind, um, and Dickie realizes that he has sort of fulfilled his mission, even though this, this person has died because of it. Um, and so he's trying to scatter at the same time, and he receives word right then that his estranged father, Jack Ashby, who is an old Air Force guy, uh, is dying. Uh, in Davenport, Iowa. He lives alone. They haven't spoken in years. He's in late stages of dementia. And under normal circumstances, whatever normal circumstances would be for this, for this guy, uh, he would probably have ignored this information. But now he needs to lay low somewhere for a while. And Davenport, Iowa seems like a pretty good place to lay low. So he goes to sort of take care of his father, who he has never seen eye to eye with and hasn't seen physically for many years. Um, He's about to be pulled into the larger narrative of the, of the book when we meet him here, but he's not yet there. Right now he's taking care of his father in Davenport. He's a drug addict. He's a, he's a pill addict. He's an alcoholic. Um, he's burned out on many, many things. He keeps his pill supply in a little ball of aluminum foil that is uh, rapidly diminishing by the day as he takes care of his father. And... Uh, that's where we meet him here. He's about to, he's about to be pulled into the larger, larger events in the book. Waking on the daybed. First smoke, first drink. Dickie picking something from his foil ball to get the synapses started. Jack already up and wandering the rooms or nowhere to be seen, and Dickie stumbling into the bedroom to make sure he was still breathing, just sleeping it off in the lopsided bed, an empty wild turkey bottle on the pillow beside him. Making instant coffee on the range in the kitchen. Some breakfast. Jack up now for sure, maybe standing in the corner by the table glowering at Dickie or out in the living room looking through the stacks of newspapers. Both men in their underpants, padding around in bare feet. The radio on, 
a news and weather station that also played a few swing numbers every hour, Artie Shaw, Lester Brown, even a few of the Benny Goodman small groups, getting dressed, getting Jack dressed, maybe a half hour killed right there, getting some vegetable broth into Jack, two coffee cups on the card table in the kitchen, one of broth, the other of wild turkey, feeding the cats. Late morning, Jack's first nap of the day, a little housekeeping maybe, peeling the rugs off the floors and dragging them into the vestibule to beat them into dusty submission, scrubbing the bathroom, gathering newspapers and mail and old soup cans, whiskey bottles, tossing it all into the dumpster behind the building. Salvaging all sorts of forgotten detritus, Jack's medals and citations from the Air Force, Dickie's old driver's license, a business card for a VA hospital with a handwritten appointment that Dickie couldn't imagine Jack had kept. More coffee. Back to the rapidly shrinking foil ball. Sidetracked by old newspapers, basketball scores, TV listings from his time underground, Dickie hunched over the newsprint like an amnesiac, excavating lost history. Jack awake and ready for lunch, the twin coffee mugs, a trip to the bathroom and the ensuing cleanup, one of Jack's outbursts, screaming obscenities at Dickie or whoever else he thought was in the room, jabbing his fists until Dickie finally grabbed him from behind and wrestled him down, holding Jack until he lay spent, limp, wheezing on the daybed, second nap of the day. Dickie down the stairs and out of the apartment, steering the fare lane down to the supermarket, the liquor store, the bank if the social security check had arrived. Still feeling like a tourist in the above ground world, but starting to get a few nods of acknowledgement from cashiers and clerks despite the hair and the beard. Becoming something of a regular. The time out of the apartment, a breath of fresh air, literally driving back slowly, windows down, taking slight detours to see the bridge from different angles, the river, the homeless vets standing in half circles down on the banks. Back to the apartment and Jack up and raging or up and weeping, trying to get a pill down Jack's throat, getting a few down his own to calm things a bit. Jack's eyes lighting up when he sees Dickie's shopping bags, the new bottles clinking in the brown paper. Here, boy, sit. Drinks all around. A moment of lucidity where Jack comments on a news story from the radio, something in the newspaper from 1969. Maybe an actual discussion, just long enough to lull Dickie into letting his guard down until Jack is after his own throat or Dickie's with a shaving razor. Dickie gathering all the sharp objects from the apartment and stashing them in the janitor's closet on the other side of the staircase landing. Vespers, the sky purple over the river, the radio station going 100% big band ballads, sending both Jack and Dickie into a teary melancholy. Dinner for himself, a takeout burger or a sandwich with some of the cat's tuna, a couple of fruit pies, more broth for Jack. Another trip to the bathroom, Jack crying at the mess he's made, Dickie holding his father's shoulders while Jack sobs with his pants pulled around his ankles. A few more drinks, another couple of pills, nightfall. Streetlights below, pinpricks of orange light from the housing project, dogs barking down by the river. Dickie's thoughts of the men there, campfires and cigarette cherries in the dark. Dickie's thoughts of Portland, an explosion in an office, a Sunday morning, the man who shouldn't have been there. Jack standing in the living room, staring at the TV, a deodorant commercial, sculpting the fingers of his right hand into a mimed pistol, aiming at the screen, pulling the trigger. Sleep, yes or no. Jack in the dark bedroom, talking or snoring. 
Dickie on the daybed, a last smoke, a last drink, the radio very low. Firecrackers from the street below, a chain of tiny detonations. A man at his desk, alone in a Portland office building. Dogs down by the river. Time moves both ways. Thank you. Would you like to answer any questions? Uh, if there are any, sure. Are there any questions? based it on a very interesting period of history. Um, how much of it, I mean, you mentioned that you, you were able to use a lot of creative license because the official record has been expunged. But those characters we learned about, uh, are those at all based on characters that were involved, or are they all your creation? And from where did you draw those characters? Uh, no, they're all they're all imagined characters. I mean, there are little bits and pieces here and there, not necessarily just from this this time period, but from other places. Uh, no, no one's based on an actual on an actual person. That was I, I felt that that would be too limiting, you know, to to write about a real person. You would sort of have their actual biography if you knew it that you would have to go by, um, and that's that's not the story I, I wanted to tell. So they're all they're all imagined. Um, you know, I, they, they come from the places any of those characters come from. You sort of think of the time period and who would be there, who would need to do certain jobs, and then they come from uh, from all sorts of things. Jimmy Dorn, who's kind of the heavy in the in the book, there I didn't read much of him, but in in some ways he was he was based on a um, we had a run-in a number of years ago with a really uh, kind of awful. Um, company that bought a house we were living in and they sent this guy out to like intimidate us and that was one of the first weeks that I wrote Jimmy Dorn's character and I saw it as like a little bit of revenge that I would kind of you know factor this guy in but um, no they come from everywhere they're not uh, based specifically on anyone uh, in the historical record whatever's left of it. But the, the tin foil with the pills in it is a great detail. That's the way I keep my pills. <laughs> yes. I go with Reynolds Wrap brand Versus like a Vons, you don't want to go with a second rate. You want to go with a Reynolds wrap. It's more expensive, but it's more insulated. Um, I don't remember where that detail came from, honestly. I don't know. Maybe it's the pills. It's too many. <laughs> right, right. Is it dying? Yeah, it's out there. I mean, if you want to lose the rest of your week, you can Google it and sort of go down the rabbit hole and never emerge. Um, I, you know, I, a number of years ago, actually, before I wrote Untouchable, I thought I was interested in doing something about the early days of the CIA. I didn't know what. And I, I was just reading some very basic histories of the organization, and I stumbled across a line in one of them. You know, in a 600-page book, there was one paragraph about this project that, you know, never worked out, and all the records are destroyed, but they were drugging guys and bringing them back to apartments with prostitutes and giving them LSD and trying to see if they could change their personalities. And, and then on to the next chapter, and I thought, oh, wait, hang on a second. This is the... Like, this is the interesting stuff. So that was that was where I first encountered it. There's some out there. There have been um, there were a few Freedom of Information Acts uh, requested. I requested one actually that was turned down. But some people have had them um, <laughs> uh, fulfilled. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I'd have to look around the room. But uh, did they ever publish their findings? 
well, most of the records in, uh, were destroyed deliberately in, in the early 70s. And it's interesting because uh, there was a period you know, up until the Vietnam War, the relationship between the media and the government was very chummy. You know, there's a lot now we learn about, like Jack Kennedy and all sorts of people that we think, how did people not know this stuff when it was going on? Um, but when the war turned and things like the Pentagon Papers were starting to be published and you had, uh, you had David Halberstam writing from Vietnam or about Vietnam and you had Seymour Hersh, uh, there was a, you know, the, the intelligence agencies are really good sometimes at seeing the future and they saw that where this was going. They saw that the press was no longer going to be their friend and they knew that they were going to be called to account for a lot of things. What was interesting to me was there were hearings in the mid-70s where they testified in front of Congress in great detail and at great length about all sorts of things, assassination plots, uh, opening of domestic mail, uh, all these things that the CIA called the family jewels, which were like the big secrets they were letting out. And they let, let out a lot of this stuff is this idea of, as we're kind of seeing now with the NSA issue of like, well, if we just get some of it out there, maybe people will go away and leave us alone. Um, and they kept all those records. The CIA was notorious in the early days. They had this huge fetish for paperwork. They would just, they wrote everything down. They just didn't think it would get out. Um, but the only, as far as we know, project of which the files were destroyed was MKUltra. They destroyed all the files. And so to me, you wonder, well, how bad was it? If they were willing to come out and say, we're opening your mail, we tried to kill Castro, we did all these different, that we were working with the mob, all these things that were pretty shocking in the mid-70s when they came out. This was so shocking they had to destroy it. And, and that, you know, that impulse factors into kind of the drive in the second half of the book where they're looking for some of the players in the first half of we've got to clean the record before anybody finds out about this. So, um, so that was kind of the impulse behind it for me anyways. In the, in the back. They were, I think it was more about trying to assess thresholds of what people are willing to do. Right, there are things like the Stanford Prison Experiment, um, which was a famous, uh, you know, to see what people were willing, how far people were willing to go in terms of torturing other people. Um, it was actually, this was a government experiment. Oh, okay. More akin to what yeah, I'm not familiar with that. It's been used in a few different, like The Good Shepherd, if you've ever seen the, the Robert De Niro, Matt Damon movie, which is a pretty good, it kind of, it's like the greatest hits of the CIA's early days. And there's, there's a scene where they drug somebody, if I remember correctly, and it's based on a story about a guy named Frank Olson who, who committed suicide. Um, so it's, it's been used here and there, but it's, it is one of those things that when you find out about it, you're kind of like, why didn't I know more about this? This seems insane. And it was. Um, two things. In reference to what this gentleman was saying, the MKUltra thing has become almost archetypal. Uh, even the movie Jacob's Ladder, mm -hmm. which deals with mm -hmm. same religious iconography, some of the core material of that movie is based on the idea of the MKUltra experiments. So this is something that a lot of people actually do know about. And secondly, the, the main book on this subject is written by Lee Martin. It's called Acid Dreams, and he's one of the very few people that actually got a hold of uh, freedom of the mm -hmm. Information Act got a hold of CIA documents about this and wrote a history of LSD, which deals, um, at least in the first third of the book, I think, mm -hmm. specifically with MKUltra. And we have two copies here. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a very good book. There's a book by John Marks called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate, which came out in the early 80s. Oh, yeah. In fact, I speak of iconic. Like, it 
Right, right, which came out sort of at the time this was happening, you know, the original in the early 60s, this idea of the North Koreans or the Chinese brainwashing American POWs. Not only money, but maybe even before they knew about it. Oh, yeah, no, that was almost complete fantasy. But, uh, no, MKUltra has become in some ways sort of the great American conspiracy theory. Everything can be folded into it. You can, you know, the Kennedy, both Kennedy assassinations, uh, Jonestown, uh, the Unabomber, I mean, any sort of act of public violence of the last 40 or 50 years, you will find somebody who will tell you that the perpetrator was programmed by the government to do this or became a rogue. Sirhan Sirhan with uh, Robert Kennedy. Yeah, yep, Nansen slang. So, so there's, it's kind of, and in some ways it was a insidiously perfect design because it's entirely deniable. You know, you were drugging people in prisons, in mental institutions, you were drugging Johns. None of these people were going to go to the police. Uh, you know, if you came out of a mental hospital as a teenager or a young adult and told your parents the government was experimenting on you, they were going to send you back into the mental institution. You know, you couldn't come out of prison and say, so there was no, these were all deniable. All these people's stories, whether they were true or not, were, were certainly never believed. Right. Hey Scott, um, can you talk a little bit about your writing process as far as like, did you start with the character once once you came across the idea, did you start with Henry or did you kind of plot it all out and, and know the story first? No, I always I always think I'm going to plot it all out, and so I, I think I fool myself into believing, like, I've got it, I've got it nailed, now I just need to write it, I've got it. And I, I sort of did that with this, where I thought, okay, I've got this guy, I've got this woman, I've got these people, this is what they're going to do. And I thought of Henry March, I kind of sketched him out in notebooks, and I thought, all right, he's this man alone, maybe he's divorced, his wife has just left him in Washington, he's sent to San Francisco to start these things. And I found this is after a few months of kind of scribbling in notebooks, and I finally sat down, I remember in a coffee shop in Highland Park to write page one, it was like January 2nd, a few years ago, and I thought, I'm going to start this. And I started writing it, and before the end of the page, Henry had a wife and two kids in his car driving to, to Oakland, and I thought, oh, well, there goes all of my, my great planning of where this thing was going to go. So, um, so no, it wasn't, there wasn't an awful lot of, you know, sometimes you feel like you can see ahead a little bit, you know, when you're writing, you can see a chapter or a few pages ahead, and that's when it's going really well, and you kind of jot down notes. Um, but no, I, I could never, I never saw the whole thing until it was done. You didn't know where you were going, where you were going to land? No. No, not at all. No, the, the end came very quickly, and it came basically when I was writing the end of the book. Um, and then you go back and try to make it look like you knew that all along, but, but <laughs> I didn't at the time. Yeah. Did you actually drive that route that you mentioned in the first person? Not quite. I've driven a, yeah, I've driven a similar route, that southern route from the east coast to the west. Yeah, I've gone along 66. So yeah, I've probably, I've stayed in Williams, I've stayed in Oklahoma City. So yeah, I guess I have stayed in some of those roadside motels. Yeah, I like family vacations and, and stories. I always think those are seminal moments in our lives where we're stuck in a car with our families and like, you know. Yeah, not, you're right, not personally, but on the, yeah. the people. I don't suppose you'd be diagnosed back then, but was the little boy autistic? Yeah, you know, um, I had a kind of a long discussion with the publisher about this because they, they said that on the book jacket they wanted to uh, describe him as autistic and I, we, we kind of pushed back and forth about it. At the time, in the mid-50s, he would have been diagnosed as autistic, but pretty much any child um, in that era, you had children who were considered retarded, who were developmentally disabled, and then you had children who were considered autistic, which was everything else. Um, so it was not as specific a diagnosis. They didn't have the autism spectrum that we have now where we understand somewhat more about what that means. Um, and the, the treatment for it 
it was basically blamed on the mother. There, were, there was a term called refrigerator mothers. And children who were diagnosed as autistic, it was seen as they were, uh, their mothers withheld love from them. And so the mothers were basically blamed for what, whatever had happened to their child. And the, the treatment was to take the children away from the mother. They, were, they would go into institutions or into group homes. And uh, there's, a, there's an incredible documentary about this called Refrigerator Mothers that was made a number of years ago um, where they go back and talk to women in the, who you know, had children in the 50s and 60s, even into the 70s where this happened. Um, and there's some pretty courageous stories. Um, you know, there's some heartbreaking stories about people who didn't know what else to do. They were being told by doctors who at the time, in the 50s, doctors were, you know, this was the authority, were telling you, you've harmed your child, he needs to be, or she needs to be taken away from you. And the, these women said, okay. Um, but then there were others who refused to do it and homeschooled or tried to figure out how to do it, uh, how to, you know, how to deal with their children, how to, how to live with their children. And so that Thomas and, and Ginny March, um, who's his mother and, and Henry's wife, and that was kind of, once I had sort of figured that out, that's really the core of their relationship in those two characters. She's made, she's tried to make that decision. She's been told by doctors uh, that exact thing and she has refused to believe it up until now. And so she has kept him with her, but it's, as the book goes on, it gets harder and harder to do. Um, so no, I guess to answer the question, I hadn't intended, I just written him as Thomas March. That was just the character. Um, and then once I went back and was revising and, and looking into the history of that time, I realized he would have been, but I avoided using the word in the book just because it means something somewhat different now. Um, there's more, we, we kind of bring something to that word now when we read a book. Yeah, it's really good. <laughs> oh, thank you. I don't think it's a question. <laughs> Is that a question? Because I can answer, maybe. You think it's really good? <laughs> some days, yes, some days, you know. Uh, well, thank you all for coming, if there are, and you can ask questions, obviously, informally, if we, uh, but thank you, I appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.